Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's show, I am so excited to have this guy back on. Yes, he's a former executive in the music industry. Yes, he's a super, super nice guy. Yes, he's a great up-and-coming author with two under his belt. More importantly, he's become a good friend. Who am I talking about? Rick Blywis. And he started off, as you'll recall last year, a book, Pinion Scorion and the Barbershop Detectives. Well, he's back with Murder in Hexford. Without any further ado, let's meet Rick Blywis on The Thriller Zone. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Dinosaur. Fooey, hooey, balooey. What are you, you, what are you like, 79 on, right? I will be in July. Yeah, I'm 79. Okay, well, ha- yeah. <laughs> ha- happy birthday early. Well, here's the thing. I know no 79-year-old guy who goes at it better than you do oh thank you (laughs) i mean come on you know i i do try to be an example to other seniors you know and i'm i'm blessed david yeah i have energy i have no you know i sure i've got some memory loss but when you get old that's inevitable but i'm (laughs) you know i'm not like uh having alzheimer's or dementia or anything like that so between energy and and just, you know, my brains, I guess I'm fortunate is the best way I could put it. Yeah. Uh, we have started officially by now because I, you know, I always do that. I just, I never know exactly what I'm going to keep. Um, sp- speaking of that, Tammy and I watched, uh, you remember Tammy, met her at Mysterious yeah, Galaxy? Absolutely. Lovely lady. Yeah. She loves you. She just thinks you're the sweetest ever. So we're watching, we've been watching all these Judd Apatow movies lately just because they're hilarious. So last night I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm in the mood for a little midi, a little meaty, gritty story. So we pull up Still Alice starring Alec Baldwin and Julianne Moore. And she suff, she's a brainiac who suffers from uh, Alzheimer's. Okay. I say that because you just mentioned that and it was powerful performance wow and makes me think that you gotta grab it all like you said you gotta grab it today yeah you know it's interesting it's slightly off the subject but on the subject i i have a very good friend who's a recorded singer she she was actually more in the legit like nightclub singer but she mm-hmm. good recordings and she recorded many albums with lionel hampton she was his singer and I went to visit her in Florida, and um, she brought her dad along. Her dad had Alzheimer's. And I must tell you, it, it was tragic how he didn't recognize even her. You know, I mean, it, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. Yeah. I don't know. I was sitting there. We were watching it, and I said to Tammy, I said, I don't know. What could possibly be worse? And we're going to get on to positivity in a second, but I, I just really like talking to you because you're so deep. And it, and it, and I, there's a moment in the movie where, you know, she said, I wish I had cancer because at least with cancer, people feel sorry for you and they wear a pink bow. But when you have Alzheimer's, 
they look at you like you're an idiot and they start to disregard you. Yeah. And I went, wow. Yeah. Well, I have done genetic testing, you know, with 23 and me. And yep. I, didn't, I didn't just do the heritage. I did genetics. And uh, I will tell you, fortunately, I do not have the Alzheimer's gene. So I'm hoping it stays that way and that, uh, you know, my epigenetics don't turn it on somehow. <laughs> epigenetics. Don't get me started on that. That's a whole other conversation. Boy. Oh, I love epigenetics. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, in case you're wondering, we've been hanging out in the green room. We're now officially live and rolling with Rick Blywis. And uh, we're going to be talking about the murder in Haxford, which is just, oh, my God, I have so many things to say about this book. It is delightful. Sounds a little corny and old-fashioned, but I am corny and I am old-fashioned, Rick. Well, the book is kind of old-fashioned, too, so it fits totally. (laughs) See? Hey, last time we talked, we were doing uh, Hotel California, which was a compilation. Hold on a second. Yep. One of my favorite books of 22. Oh, cool. And I'll tell you why I think it is. Because (laughs) I got a short attention span, Rick. What? (laughs) Shiny object. What? (laughs) <laughs> squirrel <laughs> squirrel <laughs> um scrat so uh, th- that's one of the reasons i like it because i love to just jump into something then move on jump into something move on yeah yes that that is an anthology of short stories yes yeah short we're gonna talk we're, we're gonna pull it back around we're gonna talk about that hey listen yeah. we just had uh, mark uh, graney on recently and we can't you know not everyone can write 523 pages in a book and, you know, you got to carve out some time to read a book like that. And uh, so it it bodes well with me to get those little tasty morsels of short stories. Anyway, here's what I wanted to ask. So I, that was uh, Hotel California. It was Don Bruins. It was a whole bunch of people. It was like five months ago. Uh, and what a, what a fun t- – that was such a fun podcast. I want to know, A – how are the sales of that book been going? We're getting back to this one. And um, B, what have you been up to since then? Okay. Uh, the sales of the book are going very nicely. I mean, you Good. know, anthologies don't tend to sell the same volume that pure novels sell. But as anthologies go, it, it's doing really well. And, you know, the, the fact that Andrew Chow wrote a new Reacher story in there, you know, that's really been tremendously helpful, you know. I, 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 to be honest, I know very few people bought the book solely because I had a story in there. So I'm kind of like so pleased to be with Heather Graham and, you know, Gilstrap and Reed Farrell. I mean, you know, it's like cool. Okay, what am I doing? Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about the anthologies first. So okay. next year, there will be a thriller anthology. The year after that, there will be a Back in Black anthology. And the year after that, there will be a Bat Out of Hell anthology. And so I've got Walker stories in all of them. We've, uh, there'll be more Reacher stories. I know Jeffrey Devers is contributing a story to the thriller one. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, so that's going on. And uh, I'm writing a third Scorpion book. And I'm writing a book, a nonfiction book, 
for uh, how to be a great business leader and maximize profits and people uh, based on my corporate experiences. And um, I'm also writing a book about a um, an, an 85-year-old ex-Army vet who's living with his daughter-in-law and her family, and he's just too much of a crotchety old geezer for them to put up with. So they move him into a retirement home. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the people in the retirement home until he finds out that they're being kind of harassed by a group of young thugs, if you will. So he teaches them self-defense. And it's kind of a cross between Home Alone and the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. Your mind. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Nothing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, other than that, <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I'm just sitting around fishing. Um, <laughs> all right. So. Golly, that's amazing. Hey, folks, and by the way, if you don't know this, uh, you know, Rick was a big recording executive, uh, publishing executive back in the day. And he's he's done like everything you possibly can. So at this ripe age, he's just, once again, not slowing down and, and uh, throws a little stick in our ribs to go, hey, you can do it, too, if you get off your flat ass and just keep moving. You know, you know, I've been doing lectures with Ollie programs at universities across the United States on that very subject of you're never too old to stop following your passions and your dreams. And <coughs> I enjoy, you know, trying to motivate other seniors not to sit on their duffs and think they're too old to do anything. <laughs> Excuse me one second. <coughs> um, got tickled there. Um we're going to circle back around to that. We got so many things to do, and I'm going to try to cram it all into this one hour. Now, <clears throat> on Murder in Haxford, where we're picking up where Pinion Scorpion uh, left off in the last time on this great mystery. At the top of the pay, uh, at top of the book, Al Roker, TV personality, everybody knows Al Roker for crying out loud. He puts it best, and I love this. He goes, "If there was ever a murder at Downton Abbey." Pinion Scorpion would be a would be right at home at investigating the crime, and that so aptly puts it. Because this is one of those stories, and it's so funny because I'm I'm not an aficionado of Downton Abbey, but I do remember when my mother and my sisters pulled me into the living room to sit down and watch it with them, and I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool, and you're like, whatever, and before you know it, you're completely obsessed with it. Yeah. And then it covered several generations. So, so that time period. This was this is nineteen early nineteen hundreds, right? Ten. Here's the one point I want to make: the language that you have captured, uh, the essence of that era, especially, is a feat in of itself. And how did you do that? Because when you're reading it, you, you're, it's clear that it's not twenty twenty three. Right. How did you do that? Well, I did it in a number of ways. First of all, my whole life, I've kind of been addicted to reading Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple, and Sherlock Holmes. And a lot of the style and cadence of the language that I use was in those books. So it kind of was ingrained in me already as a, a style of writing. But then what I also did was I did a ton of research on both books to get the minutiae correct and, and create the setting and the era. 
And part of that was the language, the words that were used, the idioms that were used, especially in England. And uh, then I had some Brits and some historians and librarians look it over and make sure I didn't blow anything. So it, it really was just a combination of loving that style of writing as a reader and kind of feeling I, I, I kind, of, kind of comes naturally to me in some ways and then just enhancing it. Well, it's so funny because we speak in such contractions now. And I noticed as I have followed that era, they didn't speak in contractions. And I don't know if that is, did we, did we start contracting in order to save time and expedite the conversation? Or did we get lazy or what? But instead of saying, it didn't escape my uh, escape my attention. It did not escape my attention. Now, you don't think a whole lot of it, but until you start deconstructing a sentence and removing all the contractions, you realize how much more effort it seems to take to say it, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and, and I believe there were some contractions used, and I, I certainly hope there were, because some of the characters use contractions. Scorpion does not. He speaks exactly as you described. But, yeah, we, we shortcut a lot of things in modern-day society. One thing I like about Pinion Scorpion is the way, and it reminds me of Hercule Perot, is that everything... When he speaks, you and the way you've written it, you know that he's speaking to this person, but he's already thinking about everything else in the room. And it's so interesting how you make that happen, or, or you're igniting my uh, my uh, imagination to do that. But it's like, oh, that's a lovely idea you have, and you can almost hear him going. Although you know that you already thought about this, and I know you're the guilty party, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, I think I told you this uh, once before, but, you know, I I'm a pantser. I, I, I see this play out in my head, and my job is to go to my computer keyboard and type out so people can see and read what I'm seeing play in my brain. And that's how he talks in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> and how who, who was it, uh, Rick? Was it Was it Andrew Child on that show when we were talking about Panzer and uh, plotter and Panzer was it? Was it Andrew who said, "I don't know, I buy any of that." <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember who was the one that said that, but I uh, do buy it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's so funny. In the last, what it, we've been at this for what a year and a half now. We're on a hundred and I don't know. You'll be up in the early one twenties when we get this on the air, and <laughs> I have learned that. If someone pushed me in the corner and said, what do you think the averages of plotter versus pantser, which is planner versus fly by the seat of your pants? I would say, man, I bet you it would be 50-50 or maybe 60-40, 60 planners, 40s, roll with, roll with it. Um, and I don't know which, you know, I've had discussions in depth, which is better. I don't think there is any better. I think it's whatever works for you. Yes. I don't think there's a better or worse. I think it's whatever works for the individual author. You know, it's, you know, with the business book I'm writing, I had to plot that out because that's nonfiction. That I can't sure. see that 
play in my head. It's based on my experiences in corporate America. So, but when it comes to fiction, it just, it's there because it's, it's new. It's nothing I've ever experienced before. These are the characters talking to me. Listen, let's do this. Let's take a real quick short break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss Chief Inspector's love interest. Oh, yeah. The Thriller Zone has got different kind of thrillers up in it, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by The Story Factory and the upcoming visionary genre-bending debut novel, Grand Theft AI by James Cox. In San Francisco 2051, kids now get high-slotting wafers of data under the ear, and they'll pay fat crypto for the best at the hottest club in the city, The Fang. Thief Baz Covain and underworld fixer Rhea Rose team up with a crack group of cyber misfits to steal from the Fang's psychotic kingpin, Otto Rex. But first, they'll have to hack into his mind and infiltrate his highly secure lair of physical and virtual firewalls. It's a score that could set them up for life, if they can survive before Blackhawks touch down with federal warrants for Grand Theft AI. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available for pre-order now. The best thrillers, the thriller zone. And now back to the show. We are back with uh, Rick Blywis, and we are talking about this lovely book, Murder in Haxford, which is Pinion Scubion, lotty dotty dotty daw, carries on into book number two. And I'm telling you what, if you like, if you like, I can never say his name right. Poirot, Poirot. It's more of a Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. You, you, you can't say that without pursing your mouth, you know? <laughs> anyway, I want to get to this. The influence of love interest, Thelma Smith. Now, maybe I don't fully recall the essence of Thelma in the previous book, only because, you'll have to bear with me, only because I read so many books for the show. But I do remember, uh, or I, I, there is, there's an introduction in this book about his former wife, Catherine, which I don't remember being in the first book. So <laughs> since you got a little, you got a little dual edge love connection, tell us about that. That's a new addition. Well, in the first book, Thelma actually appeared as a potential suspect in one of the cases having to do with a circus death. And uh, because she was the, uh, the girlfriend of the uh, person who was killed. And um, when it turned out, well, I, mean, I don't want to do a spoiler, but I guess see, when it turned out, you learn this early on, that she wasn't the one who killed him. Um, Scorpion just was absolutely attracted to not just her beauty, but her, her brilliance, her brains, and the fact that she was a totally unconventional, ahead-of-her-times woman. And, and part of that is, you know, if you watch Downton Abbey, most of the women, like most of the women in that era, did, um, they worked with charities. They did charity work. They didn't work. Well, Thelma, in spite of having money, worked. She wanted to be, a, she owned a bookshop. And she loved books. And so I tried to paint her, if you will, as a woman who was ahead of her time. She wore advanced clothing for the time. And, and Scorpion just really loved that. And so 
in the second book, the their relationship is further developed. And something tells me in book number three, it's going to get even a little bit deeper. Well, in book book three starts out the first crime in the in the book three is where uh, Thelma and Scorpion are in London at a theater watching a performance by a young female magician who does an illusion that even Houdini, who's there that night, can't figure out. And they subsequently invite her to perform at the theater in Haxford. And there's mayhem that comes along with wherever this young woman performs and Scorpion's got to figure out what the heck is going on. Yes, they they definitely get more entwined. (laughs) (laughs) Entwined, I like that, (laughs) on many levels. Um, um, It did not escape my attention, Rick, that the the, the, uh, story had an introduction of a newfangled piece of technology called the telephone, which I... It's so funny when that popped in. And when you're so unaware of the fact that it didn't exist, but then all of a sudden it does exist, there's this like, oh, they're just discovering that. Yeah, we know about that. Wait till you get caught up to mobile phones. Yeah, right. (laughs) But then it juxtaposed to the period influence of the uh, Heppelwhite furniture. And, and, And I guess the reason I liked that little dose of layering to the story is because of my love of interior design and architecture. And so I go, oh, Heppelwhite, which which style was that? So it took me down this rabbit hole as I dug into period furniture. And uh, and it, it made me think two things. First of all, do you own any Heppelwhite by any chance or any Heppelwhite influence? No, none. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's funny because I, I, I'm like, wait a minute, that rings a bell. So I emailed my brother. And I said, dude, what whatever happened to the uh, red velvet uh, and mahogany Queen Anne's furniture that we grew up around? And that other thing that reminds me of the Heppelwhite. So we went down this whole conversation. We actually own some of this as wow. our family did, as our kids. And we had this whole conversation. We haven't talked about it, so we were catching up on all that. It was so fascinating. And one of those that's one of the great things about this story. And I know this is off its own little beaten path but when you when um when the barber introduces the new chairs to the barbershop since the barbershop is such a central part of the story right it gave it a whole new dimension to this reader of going oh i know what that is and i appreciate that and it was a a, an elevation of they of their decor well i appreciate your saying that because you know when it when i first saw the story, that scene happening, and those scenes happening, it was chairs. And then I said, no, 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 just chairs isn't good enough. So I researched what were the chairs of the time? What were the top end, low end, whatever? And I, it just, Hepplewhite just seemed like the absolute right touch to add to bring reality to the, to the, uh, the environment, if you will. And see, that's that's what I'm getting at. The fact that you took that one extra little detour, added another layer, a little dimension for this reader to just be able to go, uh, oh, what is that? And what's the significance? Rick must have had a significance there 
And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, I, I suppose it's much like our military thriller writers like Andrews and Wilson and Graney and Jack Carr and so forth. And when they go to refer to a gun and a particular bullet and ammunition and so forth, it's that extra little layer that makes the reader go, oh, not only do they know what they're talking about, but I know exactly what that gun looks like and what it does. So to that point, kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> There is a line at the end of the book, <clears throat> near the end of the book, that reflects Scorpion's wisdom, which is sprinkled throughout the book, by the way, where he says, and I won't pull it up, but it's, it's in here, and we'll be showing this quite a bit during the show. It has always been my belief that you should treat every day of your life the same as you would a goodly amount of money that you unexpectedly received. Enjoy it and spend it wisely. So good on so many levels. You have some significance behind that, right? Yes, that is my philosophy of life. So, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know whether it's Scorpion or Thelma, and it's probably both, that represent me, if you will. You know, most every writer has some character that has some part of them. And sure. that that particular sentence i love that sentence too i mean it just came to me but it absolutely reflects me and who i am and yeah i thank you for bringing that up or highlighting it because yeah that's one of my favorite lines in the entire book well i think this is part of simpatico with you and i we had this connection when we very first met and it's you don't find that every single day trust me and i we've both been in show business our whole lives so it is a rarity. But when I read that, it literally leaped off the page for a couple of reasons. First of all, that is a personal philosophy with which I share with you and my wife as well. And also to that <laughs> aforementioned comment we made earlier, my second nonfiction book that has now been percolating on the back burner is involving that thing specifically. So that... Ooh got a whole different, deeper level of resonance that that line has for me because that second book, which has to do with being, living, and it's going to sound oversimplistic, but bear with me a second. It's about living in the moment and taking this moment right here in front of you and enjoying it for everything it's worth. And I think part of that is because I've recently lost my mother not long ago. I lost my father. I've lost uh, most of my older family are all gone. And there's uh, someone uh, prominent in the industry that made a comment on a show, and it spurred this idea for this show uh, about this book that I'm wanting to do. But it, it really just all revolves around we don't know how much time we've got. Right. And you just, you just got to wring it out and enjoy every moment, right? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, my, my, one of my philosophies, which is not in the book, but maybe I'll incorporate it in a future book, is, you know, I don't dwell on my failures. I revel in my successes. And that's kind of what you have to do. You know, if all you do is live with failures, you're going to be constantly disappointed by your life. Boy, um, okay, since you brought up the word epigenetics, uh, I'm reading some. I'm reading two books uh, simultaneously, one of which is by a guy named Dr. Joe Dispenza. I studied with Dispenza. Oh, my God, of course you did. Holy shit. You and I have got to talk. Okay, 
I'm reading his book about becoming supernatural, and it's not woo-woo. It's, it's, no. it's science. And another one is Mark Hyman, which is uh, the way that Tammy and I live our lives as how we eat and so forth. But when you get into epigenetics and really um, the wiring that we're all get, the the wiring that we go through every day, and how much we spend looking over our shoulder and that memory connection, that that past, which is what you're saying, that past is so generally mired in negativity and does nothing to propel us forward that if you will stop and turn from it and reprogram your mind through either meditation or just positive thinking for lack of a better term you you really can change your trajectory can't you rick yes and and i want to address that and i want to address one other thing on epigenetics and the changing your trajectory so yes my wife and i both studied with dispenza i'm a huge advocate of his and uh, we not only do his meditations, but we both do his manifestations. And I will tell you, David, that uh, before the Scorpion books were ever published, I manifested their success. And uh, I believe in the quantum planes and, and that you can draw your future to be what you want rather than be at its mercy. So I practice that. that that's one thing. The second thing I want to say is, if you like epigenetics, there is a man named Bruce Lipton who has written a book and done a presentation I can find on YouTube called The Biology of Belief. And it is basically the scientific basis that is going to be in every medical textbook 10 to 20 years from now on how what you believe and how your external forces are more shaping your life than your genetics are. <laughs> oh, so I'm going to read the biology belief, Bruce Lipton. Thank you for that. Um, God, this is what I love about talking to you about. It's it's not just, I mean, yes, we're here about loving on this book and we're going to be talking about this, but this is what really gets me ticking is the broader spectrum. Okay. I want to say this. I can't think of a better piece of wisdom. <clears throat> and in fact, it falls right in line with that second book that I was telling you about than that living your best life at this very moment. All right. Before we discuss the group of detectives, which I really want to get into and drill down for just a couple of minutes, I want to give a shout out to our mutual friends at Blackstone Publishing. Because once again, they have hit it out of the park with this cover and this design and quality. There's two things I want to say. I want to pull this thing off and I want to just spread this out. Now, if you can't appreciate what this cover does then you're just missing the boat that's number one it's 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 a whole canvas it reminds me so oh, i'm gonna go on that number two <laughs> i thought about this when i picked it up because i always get so excited when i grab a blackstone book and i made this comment if you folks were to walk into a bookstore name your bookstore and you were blindfolded and so, and you reached out on the table and you picked up a book, you will know instantly that it's a Blackstone publishing book because of the quality. It's ridiculous. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I totally agree. Couldn't agree more. I know that I geek out on things like that, but I don't <laughs> care because when I, I showed this to Tammy this morning, uh, over breakfast, and I and I pulled it out just like I just did. I said, "Honey, what does this look? What does this remind you of?" She goes, 
All Creatures Great and Small. I said, yeah, we've been watching the TV series on PBS, All Creatures Great and Small. Now, I remember the old original one, but this is the new version, and it's we're in season three or whatever. But the, the opening graphics is exactly this. And the reason I'm getting geeked out on that is because it's Blackstone's attention to detail. Now, I don't know how they afford it. I don't know how in the world you can put out this this heavy of a quality on every single book because I, I know it's expensive when you compare it to some other books. But because I'm tactile-oriented, it becomes almost half of my enjoyment factor. Wow. Well, I, I will tell you that Blackstone stands for quality. The, you know, the CEO, Josh Stanton, and, and the owners, Craig and Michelle Black, I mean, that's what they want Blackstone to mean and have always strived, striven, strove. I don't know what they <laughs> I don't know the word either. <laughs> but anyway, to... to I, done, I done strived will work for me, boy. <laughs> To, you know, to really go a cut above and beyond, and they do. And the art department is fabulous. You know, Josh handpicks the paper stock and everything. I mean, it's it's just really uh, attention to detail, attention to quality. I agree with you 100%. I am such a geek about this that I'm like, I want Rick to introduce me to Josh personally. I'm going to fly up there. I want to shake that guy's hand. And whenever I go to publish a book, even if you – I don't know. I'm like – I'm not even assuming that I can ever get published by a Blackstone, but I'm like, I just want Blackstone to print it because there's nothing like the dis- there's nothing like that experience. Okay, I'm going to stop geeking. All right. Anyway, thank you, Blackstone. <clears throat> Let's talk about Scorpion's um, half dozen barbershop detectives because this little bunch of group. I want you to talk about a couple of their respective quirks and just some of the valuable insights to them. Why they're why they are so important to the the whole central of the book well they're important because a, a number of reasons first of all they give scorpion an opportunity to be collegial as opposed to like holmes and poirot were loners they solved everything alone if you will yes i i should say uh holmes did have watson but yeah. you know he still it, it was Holmes solving I, I, so they created the environment that allowed Scorpion to be collegial and, and group-solving oriented. Um, I also wanted, I, I have been a huge fan of Robert B. Parker's Spencer for Hire series. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I, I've read every one of them, literally, okay? And with Hawk and Susan and Pearl the dog and Paul, their friend, these were, were characters that enhanced the stories. Yeah. I wanted to create something similar to that and have a way of injecting some humor into the books, my books, and those characters, because Scorpion's pretty serious, so they they create the levity in the book, and that's what I, I wanted to create. Well, mission accomplished. <clears throat> Barnabas stutters. He's Welsh. He's got a really long red beard that crackles, and he's very tall and big. And Eve, on the other hand, is so short, he has to stand on a crate when he cuts people's hair. And he's French, and he speaks in all these French idioms. And Thomas, the shoeshine man, is younger 
and unsure of himself. He thinks he's not as bright as the others. And then Billy Arthurson, the newspaper reporter, is a real crackerjack chronicler, but he's young and he's in, uh, really an enthusiastic, you know, little go-getter. And I think, you know, as an ensemble, they, they kind of complement each other. And then you add, you add Thelma, you add Scorpion, and you add the other characters, you know, like Faust and Hardcastle, who's out to get Scorpion. You know, they, they kind of all play off each other. I am a classic thriller reader from way back. I, I There's nothing I love more, generally speaking, than to get that first page and you just dare me not to turn it and just rip through those. I, I'm classically that reader. I suppose because, again, tension span, too much to do. I'm always creating, but I just love that. Just take me and run. However, conversely, other side of the coin, fill in the blank, you take a book like this, and, and and to use metaphors, etc., it's like curling up on a great big old leather couch in front of a fireplace with the dog by the side and a cup of hot whatever you want to fill in the blank and just get lost in a book and just escape and enjoy both an intriguing mystery, which you don't get to always read these days. And back to your point about characters, I love secondary characters. I think sometimes you can you can go down a rabbit hole with your secondary characters all day long for me uh, because I just love those and they add so much color and texture to the story. I I totally agree with you. And you know my my goal once I wrote these books was not to be viewed as someone that writes great literature but someone who writes enjoyable literature. I yeah. want people to read these books and be immersed in them and forget the stresses of their daily life for a while and be transported back to this era, kinder, gentler, have some fun. That, that's really what I hope people get away, take away from these books. You know what? And this is exactly, you, you just nailed it right between the eyes because I, <clears throat> this is what I was saying to Tammy the other day as we're wrapping up one of these, you know, we binge watched a, a, an entire season of All Creatures Great and Small. And before you right. called me old fashioned, that's okay. But at the end, I said, you know what? There's something about the fact that I can just sit there and get entertained about simpler times and that the most, perhaps the most, complicated thing will be uh, a calf will have a hard time being born or you know something's gonna get lost in the mail that shouldn't have been sent or you know something like that and I and I know it sounds oversimplistic but man sometimes I just think especially when you get when you get hooked up with these dang cell phones and and you're bombarded by social media constantly you go can you just shut the hell up and let me escape yeah well, I binge, uh, my wife and I binge All Creatures as well. So yeah. you're not alone. That's one of our favorite shows too. So yeah, I, we like being transported away just as other people do. Yeah. And I want to, I want to make sure I hit this point because, uh, as we start to wrap up is you're, you're the, you're a great example of what we should become. And that is not afraid of, uh, time. And not afraid of not being able to do something. You're a guy who has shown to us, and I love you. You inspire me in ways that you don't even know, Rick. 
to just keep going, follow your dreams, get the stuff done. Now, I want to make a point about some business because I know publishing is a business. And I had a great conversation with Brad Taylor recently. And one of my biggest what takeaways was when he said, oh, no, dude. If, if, I know, if I had known publishing was going to be as hard as it was, I would never have done it. He <laughs> happened to hit at just the right time with just the right book, found just the right agent, just the right publisher. And he was, I'm like, well, how long did it take before New York Times bestselling author hit the top of your book? He goes, no, that, it happened right out of the gate. And I'm <laughs> like, what? Yeah, that, that's, that's unusual, but great. <laughs> Unusual and great, and he said, "I he said I realized how I'm using the phrase fat and lazy. He's not fat nor lazy, but how you can get acclimated instantly." Going, he said to his, "Oh, you weren't expecting this? I mean, like I just assumed that was the way it is." And my point is this: when he said, "If he had known how hard it was," and he said, "Look, I'm not expecting all my books moving forward to be NYT uh, bestsellers um, because of the competition." So. All of those words to say, what's, how do you see publishing today? How do you see it moving forward? What kind of, not advice, because I'm saving that for the last one, but what kind of insights and inspiration do you offer, especially up-and-coming writers, on how to see this world, tackle it, stay confident, and keep moving forward, not be discouraged? Yeah, okay. I hope this answers it. But, you know, between self-publishing and traditional publishing and hybrid publishing, if you take all three, I believe there's uh, somewhere around 4 million books published a year in the United States, new books. Um, so to me, the best advice that, that, well, that as I see going forward and, and the uh -huh. advice that I can give is first decide what, how you want to be published. Do you want to self-publish, which means you've got more control, a shorter lead time, but at the same time, all the money is coming out of your pocket to get it right and get it done, um, and the chances of succeeding, the odds of success are lower, but when you hit, you could make a ton of money as a self-pubbed author. Or do you want to go you know, in a more traditional and get an agent? It'll take longer, but... It's on their dime, not your dime. But the other thing I would say is what's incumbent on authors today is no matter how you're published, you have to do your own marketing. You've got to supplement what the traditional publisher does or do all of your own marketing if you're doing self-publishing because if you don't, you're handicapping yourself against every author that is doing it and more and more authors are doing it because they know social media is one of the great ways to explain expose books these days. And that's what's changing publishing to a huge degree. Bookstagram, BookTok, Facebook, you, you name it. It's like, boy, if you get followers, you can have huge success. Now, that's superb, by the way, superb. I want to, I want to unpack this a little bit further, <clears throat> and that is this. Well, let's pretend I'm an idiot and I don't know what hybrid uh, publishing is. And explain that to me. Sure. Basically, there are publishers, and I will say some are totally legitimate and some are totally illegitimate and shady. Um, but where 
if you don't want to be with a traditional publisher and have to go through getting an agent and writing query letters and doing all of that and waiting two years to get your book published potentially, etc., uh, but you also don't want to do it all yourself, hire your own editor, cover designer. You can go to a hybrid publisher that will, you'll pay them, but they'll get it done for you. So that in effect, you'll end up at the end of the day, in most of them, buying your own book back from them to sell. Some of them will sell it for you, but in in effect... If you do it yourself, you do everything and you pay for everything. If you do it through a traditional publisher, they do everything and they pay for everything. If you do it through a hybrid, they do everything and you still pay for everything. (laughs) I'm not sure that sounds all that tempting, Rick. It it, it can be or it can't. A good hybrid publisher could be a viable way to go. Because, you know, one of the things to say, David, is – One of the complaints about self-published is a lot of the books have terrible grammar, inferior covers, there there are sentence structure issues. A hybrid publisher will eliminate all of that. So they can serve a purpose. But some of them will take your money and do nothing. Others will take your money and do a lot. It's a matter of finding the the one that will do a lot. (laughs) And I have, without mentioning names, I have uh, heard... Many, many horror stories uh, being on this side of the microphone from people uh, from all three of those categories. And um, I really do think you got to drill down and figure out what's best for you right. and decide on how much energy and money and time you you want to put it in. Yeah. Right. And, you know, realistically, you need to know what your goals are, too. I mean, you know, the average self-published book sells under 300 copies. Um, so it, it's like... What's your goal? If you want to be on the New York Times bestseller list, there's virtually no way you're going to do that self-published. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's rare. So really, what is your goal? And that should be, to a degree, the path you go down. Yeah. And there's a gal out there. I'm going to, oh, my goodness. I just dropped her name. I want to say it's Connie or it's she exploded on TikTok. I want to say romance, but she's one of those anomalies when people go, oh, my God, look, she did it. She just, you know, she just wrote a whole bunch of books and just, you know, did some TikTok and boom, boom, boom. And she becomes an overnight millionaire. Uh, by the way, folks, that doesn't happen every day. No. And I will tell you that I, you know, since I am a publishing executive and I do acquire books as well, I have acquired books by authors who were very successful as self-published authors, but they wanted to get their books into libraries and into bookstores and in places that many self-published authors can't get them. So they came to Blackstone and we're publishing their books now. And uh, it's a different type of success, if you will. Yeah. Well, although we may have slightly touched on it, I do have to uh, wrap with the final question of the show, which you have answered before because you've been on the show uh, once before as solo and then second with the Hotel California group. But you know what it is. It's about your best piece of writing advice. And I know it's going to be a little bit slightly above what you just talked about. But a lot of my authors or a lot of my listeners are brand new authors. A lot of them are just joining for the show for the first time, so they didn't hear you before. They're, I mean, I'm finding out my backlog of shows is gaining more and more popularity. So all that was tee-up time for you to decide what that is. Well, for one thing, I would say have fun. 
you know, writing is, is not like launching missiles, you know, I mean, it's like, it should be an enjoyable endeavor, you know, I mean, if, if you're passionate about writing and, and books, follow your passion and have fun with it. Um, don't give up, you know, I mean, don't let every writer I know has had rejection in some way, shape or form. I'm sure there are some that haven't, but I don't know them personally. And yeah. so I would say, don't give up, you know, don't let negativity. If your first manuscript is rejected by publishers, uh, go and write another book, you know, yeah. write and keep writing. Um, if you do want to be traditionally published, make sure you know how to write a really good query letter. And then, you know, make sure you research agents uh, to know who's good in the genre you're writing in, who's looking to get accept manuscripts, open manuscripts, and then customize your query letters to them so that it's not a one-size-fits-all dear agent. That will kill you. It's got to be personalized. Find out, do they ride horses? Start with, hey, I love the fact that you ride horses. Then at least they know you, you've taken the time to find out who they are. Um, and I don't know, it, it's just sort of uh, go for it. And if you get writer's block, walk away from it, come back to it, see if you can... Uh, you know, if it picks itself up and if it doesn't, try something, writing something else. What the heck? You know, I mean, everybody has issues. I, I stop writing for weeks at a time and then all of a sudden something will come into my head and I'll write for 10 hours straight. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times we do put uh, unnecessary pressure on ourselves. Like if you say, like I know a lot of people say, I'm going to crank out 1,500 to 2,000 words a day or whatever the number is. And if I don't hit it, I'm not going to make – well, sometimes – I don't know about you, but if you put a certain kind of subconscious pressure – my wife and I call it uh, the have-tos. Right. We get kind of tired of the have-tos. And like if you fa if you have a have-to hanging over your head, it's often hard to get excited about the have-tos when you go, how, how about you turn that into a want-to? And I want to do that. And if I can – hey, maybe I can get 500 words, but I feel good about it. Great. Enjoy that. Celebrate it and move on. Yeah, I totally agree. And when you've got a deadline, I mean, you know, when you write a second book in a series, the first book took me over five years to write. So, you know, it's what the heck. I didn't have a deadline. The second book, I had a year to write. So, but I still didn't do daily word counts. I did weekly and monthly word counts, mainly monthly, because I sometimes wanted to take off days and not write at all. And then I would write 12 hours a day you know, in subsequent days. So as long as I hit my numbers at the end of a month, that's all I really cared about. Yeah, you just brought up something that I think about is, again, to back to the not wanting to, you know, the have tos. Sometimes if you just say, like today's Friday, I don't generally record on a Friday, but I, I like the fact that I go on a Friday. But when we hang up, I'm probably just going to go for a nice little walk down to the beach, clear my head, come back and start editing. And I say that because sometimes you got to do the same thing with anything. I mean, remember back in the day when you'd you'd go out for a smoke break uh, for those who smoked, just to get away from the noise of the office. And you go out there, you have a little smoke, tweak yourself up with some nicotine, some caffeine. You go back and you're ready to go again. Not a good example, by the way. Not a good example for healthy living. <laughs> hey, by the way, can I bring up one other thing slightly? Please, uh, because it's you our show, yeah. 
You brought up being, you know, New York Times bestseller. So I, I've had accolades on the books. I've won awards. You know, have gone to number one in various categories on Amazon and been really well accepted in independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble. But I don't know if I'm ever going to make a New York Times bestseller list. Would I like to? Sure. Will it happen? Who knows? But I'll tell you what was my New York Times bestseller moment. And that was when a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old, and the 14-year-old happens to be Jeff Wilson's daughter, Emma, who is the star of a TV series on Echo TV. Um, and they told me, their parents told me, that they absolutely devoured the, the Pinon Scorpion books and that Emma, in fact, is going to start uh, posting about it. And the, and the fact that it can be read by younger people because there's no gore, no sex, no violence. That is my New York Times bestseller list, actually. That is such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it pleased me no end. Well, we never know how far we reach. And, you know, sometimes the thing that's most imp- seems to be the most important in a professional sphere, really isn't all that big of a deal. And it, and it makes me think about this. You know how many times you'd go to aim to do something good and to achieve an award and to win this trophy or whatever, and the minute you did, you're like, yeah. And 15 minutes later, you're like, okay, so what's next? Right. I mean, hey, listen, one thing before um, we ring off, and I, and I got to, you know, I was checking out, of course, your website. I'd like to see what's updated. Uh, I did see your Linktree site. Very impressive. Um, the good news is you have all sorts of ways to read and listen and visit and watch and hear your podcast. However, there's one thing mis- I'm missing, and I want to make sure that maybe you get a link to the Thriller Zone podcast out oh, there. I didn't know it wasn't. Let me uh, Let me make a note. Please make a note. And while you do, I'd like to say to my listeners, folks, if you'd like to learn more, visit rickblywis.com. And, of course, follow him on Twitter, as I do, at the very same. It's right here on the bottom of the screen. He has the note made. He's going to add me to his link tree. I'm dancing with unicorns and rainbows all around my head. I'm so excited. Well, cool. No, I will definitely get a hold of my webmaster and have her uh, do it. Rick, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you're, you're just you're a, you're a gem. You're a gentleman. You're an ins- inspiration. Um, you're a great author. You've become a good friend, and I'm just I'm humbled by the time that you've given me. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on, David. Because back to you, everything you said about me, I feel about you. So it's mutual. Trust me. And I cannot wait to launch this second podcast. My wife is probably down the hall going, what? A second one? (laughs) Look how many hours you spend on the first one. (laughs) But it's going to be a doozy. And it's going to crack wide open with a lot of this stuff that we both get geeked about, which is, you know, just the mind and living in the moment. And, you know, I said to her last night, we're watching this movie, and I'm like, Babe, it just reminds me, this is over in a blink. Yeah. And, you know, we're a speck. We're, we're a grain of sand in a football field, our planet, in relationship to everything around us. And time is about the same. I mean, it's, it's blink and you're gone. So 
all of that. That's a whole lot of words to say. Get out there and enjoy yourself and write with reckless abandon and just have fun, like Rick says. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if, uh, David, I don't know if you remember, but the commercial that runs at the beginning of virtually every single All Creatures Great and Small is from one of the cruise lines. Yes. Uh, commercial and the point that the owner of the cruise line says in it is the most uh, important commodity we have is time and that is absolutely absolutely a fact i'm glad you brought that up when you really philosophize about it there's only one thing you don't have enough of time is the only truly scarce commodity when you come to that realization i think it's very important that you spend your time wisely And what better way of spending time than traveling, continuing to educate ourselves and broaden our minds. That's such a great, powerful launch to that and a great wrap-up to this show. Yep. Goes back to what you said earlier. You got to love it. You got to have fun with it. And um, therein lies a lot of the joy. Oh, and back to our earlier conversation, which we're talking about, which is... You know, uh, treat your every day of your life the same as you would a goodly amount of money that you unexpectedly receive, and that is to enjoy it and spend it wisely. Yes. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste back. <laughs> <laughs> The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.